Hello, this is Dave Berner from the radio program at Columbia College Chicago, associate professor there in the communication department in the School of Media Arts. And I'm uh, recording this from my home office, as many people are doing these days. And you might hear a dog bark or a bird chirp, or they're doing some construction behind me at a new house. So you might hear that too, but that's the way of the world these days, right? And we have some great stories here that were done pre-pandemic. So these are stories from my radio storytelling class uh, this semester, and uh, there's some great ones in here. I'd love you to listen to them. So let's get started. The radio storytelling class of 2020, the spring semester. When I was a kid, my parents would sit on the couch and watch whatever they wanted. Much to their dismay, my two sisters and I would sometimes wander in and pretend to watch too. Hugh Laurie's sour face is forever ingrained in my brain due to all the hours of House MD I wasn't paying attention to. There wasn't any show that they watched that my elementary school brain could fully comprehend. All except one. Super Nanny. Super Nanny was a show centered around a British woman named Jo Frost, who would travel across the country saving parents from their terror children. She was caring, but stern, and truly knew how to talk to a child. Not to mention, every true Super Nanny stan knows that Nanny Jojo mainly puts the adults in their place, and not just the kids. It was a show I could resonate with because, around that time, I needed Super Nanny. My sisters and I would fight constantly. Every day, someone was someone else's friend, which meant that the outlier would feel their sibling wrath. My parents had short tempers, and they were staying together only for the children, whom they couldn't be bothered with. They were never home and never wanted to do anything with us. And that's the Sparks Notes version. I was the most well-behaved, and that came with a price. While my sisters were teasing me to the point of panic attacks and my parents would just look the other way or yell at me for overreacting, I started to realize that that's not right. There had to be a way to fix this. You guys are in a crisis. I'm on my way. At the end of every Super Nanny episode, they would have a call to action saying that if you needed Super Nanny's help, then call Nanny 911. It was written in big, bold red letters across the screen. And if you called, you could be on the next episode. It was so simple. I was a seven-year-old genius. I'll just call Super Nanny myself. I walked into my parents' bedroom with my twin sister, Kaylee, falling behind and calling my bluff. I grabbed the house phone from its base. Prepped and ready for calling, I bring it up to my head and just shout, Nanny! directly into the phone and then proceeded to dial 911. I think they definitely do need me. My mind is a blur to how the actual phone call went. I don't remember speaking to anyone. All I remember is crisply hanging up the phone and feeling like a god. Kaylee kept pestering me. She said, how do you even know if it worked? I claimed something along the lines of, well, it's supposed to be a surprise. They don't know when she gets there, so we're just gonna have to wait. 
My wade consisted of playing some good old American Dragon Jake Long games on the Disney Channel website later that evening. But the Mac Daddy Dragon of the NYC couldn't save me from my mom yelling my name from up the stairs. It turns out that when you dial 911, the police show up. Huh. Needless to say, I get lectured by officer geared up like he wanted some shootin' about only calling 911 if there was an emergency. I told him that I just wanted to call Super Nanny, and I asked him why my foolproof plan didn't work. And that was the day that I learned that the letters were actually numbers! This is sad, really, really sad. After that incident, whenever I would watch the show, I would see all the numbers that you're supposed to press in place of the nanny at the bottom of the screen. They still had Nanny 911 blaring out to anybody who could see it, but they had these tiny little numbers right underneath it. And let me tell ya, they weren't there before. I think most people would agree that one of the most important lessons in life is that you can't approach every problem the same way. Everybody figures this out sooner or later, but I learned it from somewhere I never expected. Coffee beans. To add a bit of context, there was a point in my life when I was in high school that I felt like I was completely stuck in all aspects of my life. I was frustrated academically, socially, and I was having major problems with my co-workers. None of these problems ever seemed to resolve themselves no matter how hard I would try, and it always led to me just getting more and more frustrated. This got worse and worse until I didn't want to do anything besides come home and mope around at how angry I was. Which is exactly what I did until one day I thought I'd at least pick up a new book to try out. Since I was so bored, I picked up a book on something I'd never even read before. Coffee making. As I began to read about the world of coffee, I realized how broad and diverse it was. Yet this knowledge isn't really known to the general public, although we consume coffee on a daily basis. I became so interested in the coffee making process, I thought I'd try it out myself. I'd never done this before, but we had a small fireplace out back that I could roast the beans at so I could actually practice doing the entire process step by step. And that's exactly what I did. I went into town to buy raw, unroasted coffee beans to see if I could roast them and make an acceptable cup of coffee. I spent a few days reading about the specific beans I bought and how I would go through step by step with them from roasting to grinding to brewing. After I thought I was ready, I gave it a try, and to my surprise, it was actually pretty decent. Feeling a lot of confidence from this little endeavor, I went back into town the next week and bought five different kinds of beans to roast at my fireplace. I followed the same instructions and was using the same equipment as I had the first time, but something was different about those cups of coffee. They were terrible. It turns out general methods are not good enough in the world of coffee making. I'd been following a set of instructions and equipment methods I used for one bean, and when I applied them to other beans, the results were dissatisfying. This taught me the most important lesson in coffee making. You have to treat each bean differently. You have to know what it's made up of and how to roast it, how to grind it, and how to brew it. Each one has their own special requirements. 
This even extends to the equipment you're using. For example, a grinder that results in a coarse grind cannot be used for a bean that requires a fine grade grind. Another example is that while you roast an arabica bean lightly to savor its flavor, you darkly roast a robusta bean in order to drive out its bitterness and add body to the cup of coffee. Lessons like this began to open my mind and present to me new ways to tackle the problems I was experiencing in my actual life. I realized that I was simply resisting every problem in my life the same way over and over again. Like coffee beans, you have to treat each problem differently and assess what that specific situation needs for you to adapt to. If you can figure out what coffee bean you're dealing with, you can figure out how to properly roast it. The week following the deaths of my grandparents in January of 2017 was the worst of my life. They had a joint funeral, their brothers and sisters flocking to Chicago from Mexico to bid them goodbye one last time. My great-aunt Carmen and her new, noticeably young husband stayed at my mom's house. In the years leading up to that point, my mental health had been plummeting, like a meteor crashing to earth with innocent bystanders on the ground waiting to die along with it. What made things worse was the sleep paralysis that racked my body every single night for years, suffocating and silencing me. Hallucinations of a woman screaming into my ear each time I closed my eyes. It is often believed that demons are to blame for the experience of sleep paralysis. Remember this for later. I've always known Carmen as she is, a psychic, a medium, a healer. There are so many words for it, but I never understood the extent of what she can do until her last night spent in my house. Carmen wanted to give us a gift of protection, so naturally she channeled the spirit of an indigenous Brazilian war chief, because of course she did. Her eyes rolled to the back of her head, her voice grew deeper and distinctly not her own. She spoke Portuguese, and although the language isn't far from Spanish, it was still translated into Spanish and then into English. It was a whole process. The war chief gave each and every one of us, my mother, sister, cousins, and aunt, protective jewelry, earrings, and a necklace. We didn't receive anything tangible, but more conceptual and otherworldly, if that makes sense. He spoke to us through Carmen, mumbling some spiritual BS under his breath. And then it was my turn. He didn't give me any jewelry, which was something I was actually looking forward to. No. You know what he said instead? There's something wrong with this one. I thought it was a joke. But then the war chief began to tell my family things about me and my mental state that I have never been comfortable exploring. It was mortifying. He insisted it was the result of the spirit of an African woman who had attached herself to me for the previous 14 years of my life, slowly draining my energy. He said she would have killed me if she'd stayed any longer. Believe what you will, I'm still hoping there was some sort of translation miscommunication somewhere in there. He performed a very traditional Latin American spiritual cleansing on me involving 
rubbing an egg all over me and reciting prayers that were never translated to me. I was told I was like a magnet to evil energies and that to prevent something like this from happening again, I should bathe in a number of herbs for a number of weeks, to which I said, yeah, sure, but never actually did. After the cleansing, I weirdly did feel mentally lighter. Bad thoughts went away, I stopped isolating myself as often as I did, I spoke more and was happy to meet new people and socialize, and you know, who knows if this change was something psychological that was only triggered by the spiritual cleansing and I was just playing myself for years, but what I do know is that I slept that night without sleep paralysis for the first time in years. And as I said, it is believed that demons are to blame for the experience of sleep paralysis. After that day, the woman who tormented me every night for years had gone away. Sleepless nights were gone, and I was finally getting used to sleeping through the night and without fear. Gone was the dread that filled me each time I slid into bed for the night. That is until recently. They took everything. No friendly feeling. No smiling face behind that cluttered desk. They took everything. Her name was Kate Fields, my high school English teacher and cheerleading coach. She was young, smart, and passionate. I know most kids who go on to art school usually end up having had a close relationship with their English teacher. I'm not sure what the meaning behind that is, but all I'm saying is if you're an art kid, you can probably relate. Ms. Fields was my best friend in high school. We spent most of our class periods together getting distracted and talking about Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, fandoms we were both extremely involved in. She made me a strong reader. She made me love reading again after losing my passion for it in middle school when most of my focus was on stuff like getting my first period and growing boobs. After a few years of growing our friendship, Miss Fields eventually tried to convince me to join the school's cheer squad, of which she was the coach. She thought I'd be a good addition to the team with my dance background. I laughed in her face and told her cheerleaders were too snooty for my taste, but she eventually wore me down. Turns out I was right, and cheerleaders were too snooty for my taste, but her being there made it kind of fun. Junior year came around. I was sitting in Spanish class and heard commotion in the hallway. My teacher ran out and her face dropped. A few minutes later, we learned that Miss Fields was lying on the ground, not moving. The teachers got her to come too, and she was taken to the hospital. They told us she'd had some sort of seizure and bumped her head on the side of a water fountain. Three weeks later, she returned with huge black eyes and a giant bump on her head, both results of the fall. She came back in sunglasses, a hat, and her usual giant smile. She said, I look like Gollum. Ms. Fields explained to me that the doctors never figured out what was wrong with her or why she had a seizure. She was given tons of medication, but nothing seemed to help. 
She continued to have seizures every few months, missing tons of school and returning with a more and more weakened spirit every time. Senior year came around, and I ended up leaving my high school in the middle of it. I cried on my last day and said goodbye to my teachers and counselors. Ms. Fields was last. I hugged her and told her to take care of herself. She said the same. I didn't reach out after that. I guess I was busy. I found out that Miss Fields was dead while I was at a party a few months later. She died from a massive seizure that caused a heart attack. She was 31 years old. I went to visit her classroom before I moved to Chicago for college. They took everything. No friendly feeling. No smiling face behind that cluttered desk. They took everything. I guess I just regret not reaching out when I had the chance. I know I couldn't have predicted what had happened, but it doesn't matter. Now, I guess I'm just trying to appreciate the people that I have while I have them before their rooms are empty too. I'm an only child. I never wanted siblings growing up, and honestly, after seeing what my uncles are like now, I think I dodged a bullet. However, I was never alone growing up. Our household has always been a miniature zoo. I always considered them the closest thing I had to a brother or sister, just with a lot more fur and much more adorable, and of course, without the sibling drama. Just like people, however, animals come and go in our lives, and many times, their stay is much shorter. I have learned and loved hard with every fur baby that has entered our home. There is one, however, that has given more to our family than we could ever expect. It's a typical February blizzard in Wisconsin, and school has been called off for a snow day. My grandparents are in town, so I get to spend my day off of fifth grade snowed in with them. Of course, I do my usual perusing of the local Humane Society website. I am on the search for a guinea pig. We are about 10 minutes into the search, and it's going rather well, because my grandparents have yet to shut me down about it. See, my parents couldn't stand to see how sad I got every time I got prematurely attached to an animal that we couldn't bring home. This was especially the case with cats, as my dad had claimed all my life that he was allergic. Thankfully, being your grandparents' favorite grandchild comes with its perks. When I was six years old, they let me bring home a one-pound ball of fur to live at their house. I got to visit whenever I wanted, and I didn't know any different. So if we couldn't have a cat at our house, then a guinea pig would surely be fine. When my mom got home from work, I filled her in on all the possible adoptees. Of course, to no one's surprise, she didn't want this. My grandma could not bear to see me so crushed. And being the coolest grandma she is, she told my mom that it could live at her house too. I think my mom could have exploded right then and there. She took a second inside and asked to put the topic on hold for the night. I reluctantly did, but in my mind, the thoughts raised of a potential new guinea pig in the family. The next morning, my grandparents headed home and school was back on. On the drive there, my mom said that we could go look at guinea pigs when she picked me back up at the end of the day. I was ecstatic. The final bell rings and I race down the stairs and out the door to meet my mom. 
We arrive at the Humane Society, and the lady behind the desk takes us to the small animal room and lets me attempt to hold the guinea pigs seeking a forever home. None of them want to come out. The excitement in my eyes again starts to fade. My mom can see it too. Even though she didn't want one to begin with, she hates to see me sad. The worker leaves us to talk, and then my mom does something odd. She takes me to the cat area. They're all taking naps or want nothing to do with us. I laugh at her and remind her that we can't have cats at home. We decided to call it a day and head out, but all of a sudden, my mom gets whacked in the head. I turn around and at the very top cage by the door, a gray paw is sticking out. He makes me laugh again and I've already forgotten about the guinea pigs. My mom looks at me and then she takes me with her to ask the staff if we could meet him. Shortly after, Griffin, the cat, is rubbing up against us and purring so loud I think the people outside the door could hear. My mom knows she did something bad, but it's too late now. She is already sold. She puts in the paperwork and a few days later we come back to get him, still without my father's knowledge. We get home and hide him in our spare bedroom before my dad gets home from work. My mom has to take me to my weekly religion class and then head to a meeting of her own. She picks me up a few hours later and I sneak up to the guest bedroom making sure to avoid running into my dad, although he is nowhere to be found. We open the door and, to our surprise, my dad has already met our new family member. The cat is lying on his stomach getting plenty of ear scratches, and in this instant, they are now the best of friends. We didn't know it then, but our new cat would be so important to our whole family, but especially my father in the years to come. A week before I started my freshman year of high school, my dad was diagnosed with bile duct cancer, a terminal diagnosis. When my dad was sick, Griffin never left his side. He would wait at the door for my father to return from his chemo treatments and stint replacements, just as he did in the years prior when he would come home from work. I often question who my dad loved more, me or the cat. Two years after he got sick, my dad's battle with cancer ended during his home hospice care. When the coroner came to take his body, Griffin ran out the door after him. Their bond was something so strong, and I can never thank my furry pal for the love and care he gave my dad. Even though my dad is gone, having Griffin with me reminds me that my dad was well taken care of. So for my dad, I make sure our buddy is taken care of now, even if he isn't a guinea pig. My first college party was probably one of the most exciting moments of my college life. I went to school out of state, and even though I was a freshman, I had made friends fast and knew some people from Chicago now attending school with me in Virginia. The news had spread to my circle of Chicago friends about a party later that night that was going to be in an apartment complex, not too far from campus. We decided to make this party our mission for the night. We went to get all the party essentials because what fun is it being a sober guy in a party full of zooted and drunk people? Part one of our mission accomplished. I had achieved the ultimate level of crossfadedness. The only bad thing about being this crossfaded is that finding addresses in this apartment complex was already bad sober. And after about 10 to 15 minutes of wandering around, we found the apartment and we're now getting ready to achieve the second part of this mission, which was gaining entry. We knew this could go one way or the other. We came to a party. Just three guys, no girls in our group.
But since the person throwing the party was from Chicago, we tried to appeal to that nature. My friend luckily knew the guy at the door and what we thought was just a party for people in Chicago turned out to be a party for the whole freshman class. Part two of our mission accomplished. This apartment was packed like sardines in a can. There was no room to maneuver through the room without bumping into someone. You had your social drinkers and smokers in the room and a kid even from my high school was DJing the party. There was nothing but good vibes in the room. But you know when things might be just too good to be true? Well, just about our damn luck. As soon as we had got comfortable in the party, the party host was trying to get everybody to quiet down, but then I had a couple grams of weed on me and I was paranoid. I was trying to find somewhere to hide it just in case the police came in. The knock stopped. And I was almost time for curfew. The host started towards the door. And as soon as he opened it, campus police were rushing into the door frame with their flashlights in full broom. Me and my friends instantly made a run for it towards the back room during all the confusion of the police trying to make everybody sit down in the front. Time to find our exit strategy. We saw a window open. We realized we weren't the only ones in this room. There were a couple other kids, and this kid on the basketball team stuck his leg out the window. He jumped out feet first, and not to mention that we were on the top floor of a three-story apartment. I had no idea what was going through this man's head. But this window seemed like our only way out. When the second kid jumped out the window, the police had caught on to the strategy. They were chasing him throughout the apartment complex, and our plan turned sour as a campus police officer found the rest of us in his back room. They tried to make us snitch so we could leave early, and I refused to have my freshman year reputation labeled as an informant. Some girl ended up snitching anyway, and as we were walking down the stairs, me and the campus police officer locked eyes. I ran as fast as I could. It looked like a scene out of Pamplona as all the kids were scrambling trying to make it back to their dorms. I still remember the one kid that was running with me and struggling to keep up saying he was out of shape and he had to stop smoking. I made it to my dorm safe and sound and evading campus police which wouldn't be my first time for the rest of the school year. But the not knowing of being potentially booked and kicked out with the whole freshman class was one of the most exciting moments of my life. You're listening to Radio Stories on WCRX. I feel like I'm drowning. Like I'm an anchor. Only put in water to sink. I'm burning like I've already seen my future and I'm dark like my grave, waiting for my soul. Depressed. There's no way out. No feeling of faith or love. I'm broken. My heart has been crushed. Hatred. My soul has been stuffed. I'll never be saved because I'm just not enough. You can compare me to a bee. Expected to buzz around and help others with their problems. Whether she's insecure or he's heartbroken. But the reality is, I can't even help me. 
It's these feelings I won't let you see. It's this world that we're living in. I'm desperate to flee. But I have to admit, it's time you all know. I have my own problems, deeper than snow. Snow, cold, brutal, and can sometimes freeze. Such is the feeling of life itself. I get stuck, the feeling of loneliness. I begin to ask, does anyone even want me? I wish I had the patience to be patient, to have the confidence of a skyscraper, yet I feel like I'm crowded in a basement, a small underground of a house so large. The walls you can't escape, not even if you hit them with full charge. I'll never get out. I'll never be free. These are my thoughts. These are my feelings. You don't have to agree. I undergo all these problems, the ones you'll never see. But I still move forward with a smile. I still do me. I cover up the hurt. I cover up the pain. No matter what it is, no matter what is said or done, it won't never change. All alone, I'm lost. Trapped in a cloud, these voices, they're screaming at me, rude and loud. I don't care anymore. I've lost all hope, faith, love. I'm just lost. I won't make it out. I'm stuck in this cloud, yet there's no moisture. It's a drought. There's a storm going on inside me that I can hardly see. There's no light. I'm so scared and so lost, but I don't think I want to be found. There's something about swamps, lush, dark, and deep. I grew up for a time in southern Georgia, not far from Savannah. We lived in a suburb further out from town and were surrounded on all sides by swamps and marshes and nature. Not long after I found my pack of friends, we located our headquarters in a swamp between suburbs. We built a world of our own inside the swamp. It is a world that we made out of stolen deck pieces and hammers and nails snuck out of our house. We each built little homes away from home. The structures are precarious, likely to fall apart from poor construction or the elements themselves. A creek ran through the center of our camp, small but constant in its movement. Disbanded any time we run into adults or the teenagers of the neighborhood who like to play airsoft on our turf. There are a billion ways to pass the time. We try unsuccessfully to build boats that always end up sinking with whoever's on it screeching when their feet touch the water or the squishy mud below. We build and rebuild houses and sneak around to find supplies. Some days we pretend to find food and try to make whatever it is into something that looks appetizing. We always keep an eye open for alligators, which are unlikely, and copperheads, which are too likely. Manhunt is our game of the year, and I love to hide in the swamp. There are ways to disappear, and plenty you can get to that people don't want to follow after you. We play manhunt all the time, professionals of the game and the area. Today is unlike any other. Lexi, my best friend, is it and I'm tall enough that I've gotten up on a platform we built into the tree. Lexi is solidly shorter than me, and she can't reach easily. 
However, Lexi would much rather chase Trevor anyways, as Trevor's the cute boy of our neighborhood, and Lexi always has a solid shot with whatever guy she's after. I don't stay up on the platform for long, though, eager to get down and get chasing somebody. I'm standing on the other side of the creek when it happens. All I hear is Trevor screaming. I leap across the creek after him, only to find Lexi already helping Trevor to get up and walk away. Okay, this isn't too bad. Then I see the stump. It's sharp looking, broken off just so. There's blood left behind on the stump. I look up as Lexi helps Trevor cross the creek. I can't see his leg, but I know instantly what's happened. I run to where Trevor usually hangs out and grab his stuff and run to catch up after the pair limping away. I see his leg then. I know it's bad. His mom sees us from a ways off and runs down to check over her son. She's not happy with us. Trevor leaves for the hospital. Trevor does not come back to the swamp. The parents must talk somehow, or maybe I bail and wrap myself out because my mom urges me to stay away from the swamp, or be extra careful if I am there. The tree stump is not the only reason, but it's the final straw. I run into Trevor at school and find out he had to get 13 stitches in his leg. We don't exactly stay friends afterward. Lexi and I still journey out to the swamp occasionally, and at some point we build more little houses out there our old ones being long gone, but I never go out there like I used to. I've moved away since then, but I still love being in the swamp. I would say it's universal to love the swamp, except my friends keep reminding me that they hate humidity. Also, I doubt Trevor still likes them. I do think we're all thankful for our time running wild out there. I've never felt more in charge and in my element than I did back then. I knew that there were dangers, yet I was confident that I could handle anything thrown at me. It was like being the kings and queens of my childhood kingdom. Friday, 5.58 p.m. Hey, um, it's me. I live in the room next to yours. I just want you to know how much more frustrating you made my life. Uh, the RAs came to me when I was getting ready for bed and I was just wearing a long t-shirt, no bra. Do you have any idea how embarrassing that is? I had to fight back tears while I admitted that I broke a rule. That isn't easy for me. Breaking a rule is a pretty new concept for me. I panicked for a long time about those frogs. Transporting them a thousand miles from Colorado and past the security at two hotels was almost impossible. I got those frogs as a graduation present from two of my friends, with about an hour's notice beforehand. But after that, I totally fell in love with them and wanted to invest in their care. I bought them a taller terrarium, a fogger, a place to raise crickets so I could buy them in bulk, and a heating pad. The problem with me is that I am not perfect, not at all perfect. Ramona, one of the original frogs, escaped after the first terrarium's lid was compromised by my cat. We never found her. We thought that Anderson Cooper, another one, had also disappeared until we discovered his tiny hiding place in a hole in one of the pieces of decor. 
The second terrarium lid we tried had holes too wide that let the crickets escape, which freaked out my sister, but those frogs make me so happy. And even when I had the opportunity to stop, I kept at it. I wanted to be a good frog mom, but God, sometimes things are just really hard to control. I know I screwed up. I saw the first cricket escape and I tried to kill it, but it got away. Those rascals are hard to contain in the transition between bag and container and then container and terrarium. There were also 60 of them. They're really small and designed to be eaten and they're worth about 11 cents each. But you were afraid of them. You saw one or two and then decided to tell an RA to let slip that I'd been illegally smuggling my four pet frogs in my dorm. So then they came to humiliate me in my pajamas. Am I the bad guy? I asked Reddit, and they did not like me there. Someone said that crickets were a hell animal and that I deserved it. Maybe living in Colorado, where there's a decent chance you'll find an earwig in your shower, has unintentionally hardened me. I guess I just see them as food for the frogs more than anything. This is the point where I should tell you that I am mentally ill. I have bipolar 2, generalized anxiety disorder, and gender dysphoria. I take six pills each day to make my brain work, or at least work better. When I get a lot thrown at me with very little time to recover or process, I go into survival mode. Maybe that's why I'm so mad at you. Life is getting really hard to handle, my depression is kicking me in the stomach, and I can't even take care of some damn frogs without making a mistake. Having something to look after, something to keep alive, helps me remember to take care of myself. I had to go outside to get crickets from the pet store. I had to change out the water and the fogger. I had to make sure Carrot wasn't stealing all of the food. In turn, I had to make sure that I ate, that I showered, interacted with people, fulfilled my responsibilities, stuff like that. But now look at me. I can't blame you for throwing my life off course. I'm going through a hard patch right now, but really, you couldn't have brought it up to me first. If you'd have told me, I would have taken care of the ones hiding in your room and worked twice as hard to keep mine contained. I don't know why you'd even want to talk to the RAs considering I'm pretty sure you smoke weed in your room. Reddit also told me that it wouldn't be very nice to snitch back on you, so I won't. I am imperfect, and I realize that I should have known better or followed the rules or whatever, but having something to care about made a big difference and now my mood is just stuck the way it was when the RAs knocked on my door. I feel like I'm always in my pajamas and someone is always about to yell at me. It makes me want to stay inside. Snitches get stitches. I hope somebody with less empathy than me reports you for smoking weed in your dorm. Bye! Growing up has multiple opportunity costs. Gaining wisdom, but giving up a sense of wonder and curiosity. For example, ghosts. We know they're not real because of general logic and scientific discovery, but in total darkness, repeating to yourself, ghosts aren't real, doesn't stop us from dashing up the stairs when we turn off the basement light because of the idea of what if. For the last two summers, I bartended at a music venue and bar called Seven Steps Up. There was a lot of lore about what the building used to be back in the day. It's an attractive old original brick building large wood floors, exposed wood beams leading into one main event space. The building had a history, 
which was easy to conclude when I was constantly cleaning brick dust off the counter. Turns out, Seven Steps has been in Spring Lake, Michigan for over a hundred years. Originally, it was built as a Masonic temple. It's also been a children's school, a dance academy, was closed for a while, and then slightly remodeled to become a music venue. The integrity of the building remains, and according to my boss, something else as well. When she began working there about a decade ago, she was a skeptic towards the idea of anything paranormal. Within the first few days of her shift, she was in the dark concrete basement restocking and heard what sounded like a group of children running across the main stage floor. She shot upstairs thinking she forgot to close the back door, except it was closed and locked. She was also there completely alone. When she brought it up timidly to the owners, avoiding blatantly saying the word ghost, they shut her down quickly and told her they don't want to talk about anything like that, hushing her, not out of dismay, but apprehension. So when I got hired, I was briefed on the protocol, no ghoul stories around the owners. That didn't stop my bartender buddy and I from letting our curiosity wander, because both of us are cynics and skeptics. Also, a bit arrogant towards anything that my boss believed to be there. Whenever we had to do a barback run to the basement, we would invite whatever might be down there with us to scratch our faces or throw us around. Shockingly, it never happened. The owners had converted the second floor into a studio apartment, so they took their superstition very seriously, because it was their home. Something about never bringing it up gave them a sense of security. When they went out of town, they would hire Chaz to watch the place. A perfect scenario for a bit of investigative journalism. We recruited our buddy Justin, who was the equipment manager of the venue, to join our little hunt for an apparition. He was much more of a believer, unlike Chaz or myself. We went into the all-night investigation very open-minded and truly ready to have something happen that would throw our worlds into puzzlement. We really wanted to give our boss some credit because she's a completely sane person, but has been completely freaked out by this location. So in our hunt, we brought all of our best sound equipment, professional mics, great speakers, the whole shebang. Once we were set up, then it was the waiting game. Drink a few beers, eat some Chinese food, and wait. You can't hunt ghosts during the day. Everybody knows ghosts are nocturnal. Once night had sufficiently arrived, we descended into the eerie basement, where we had set up all of our equipment. We would start with, if anyone or anything is here, make a noise. Silence. If you want us to leave, let us know. Nothing. We try this for about an hour, recording, listening back, and repeat, isolating little pieces of audio we were sure was evidence, and then boosting it so the gurgled recording vaguely sounds like a distant leave. We were quickly getting bored with that, and recordings are fine, but we wanted to up the intensity. Five minutes alone in the main space, total darkness. You can call yourself a skeptic all you want, but a 100-year-old creaky basement with shadows dancing all over the walls from the few slim windows in the corner will make your back tense. My arrogance took over, and I was taunting the empty basement to mess with me. But nothing. Our final mission was to go into the backroom workshop, 
no windows of any kind, stand in the middle of the oldest room in the building and record. The three of us went in and I took my phone with as an audio recorder. Five minutes passed of, if you want to talk to us, make yourself known. Then 30 seconds of silence, then more questions and more waiting. While we recorded, we could clearly see the audio waves jump on the screen as we talked, and then flatline when we were silent. We didn't capture a voice on tape, but something peculiar did happen. We left the workshop and went to review both my phone's audio and the computer recording of the main area. For the first time that night, fittingly around 3am, both modes of recording were unsuccessful. My iPhone played back with no sound recorded, and the audio from Chaz's Dell computer was completely distorted and corrupted. That's two different devices, made by two different companies, failing simultaneously. It's not nothing. Who's to say if we discovered anything? The fact that my boss and the owners, three sane grown adults, all truly believe there is something else in that building is interesting. Mostly because none of them really want to talk about it out of fear. The night began with Chaz and I firmly believing that all the stories were mental tricks because the building reverberates low notes and creaks constantly. But being down there wasn't scary necessarily, but you do really get a sensation of being watched. And the fact that our equipment failed in tandem, when a corruption like that had never happened before, was enough for the three of us to simultaneously agree this was properly strange. I wouldn't say that I'm a firm believer now, but I am definitely open to the idea of possibly. That being said, I will continue to try and piss off a ghost until one day one can finally change my mind forever. I am completely open to it. So ghosts, give me your best shot. I loved softball. It was truly the one thing growing up that made me genuinely happy. I had always been like super scrawny with long legs and I was always the fastest person on the field. And I'd started playing back when I was like eight years old and for a really long time, my entire life was softball. Practices every week, games every weekend, and I loved it. And then I got older and soon enough I was in high school and I didn't really like high school. People were mean and my classes were annoying, but I had one thing that I always looked forward to and that was softball season. I'd struggled a lot when I was younger when it came to being social. You know, I wasn't the best at making friends, but having a sport that I was good at made things a lot more bearable. Which is why when February of 2013 rolled around, I began to panic. February 2013 was when high school softball tryouts took place. And I'd been on the same travel team since I was like 10 years old at that point, so I hadn't had to really try out for anything in like four years. And so the way it worked at my school was if you wanted to play, you had to attend a bunch of workouts and practices and the coaches would like watch you and decide which team you're gonna try out for. And at that point in my school, there were like five different teams. There was a freshman A and B team, a sophomore team, a junior varsity team, and finally the varsity team. I remember playing high school softball was like something I had dreamed about since I was like eight years old. I used to attend these softball camps in my high school when I was younger. And I remember thinking the high school girls who ran the camps were like unbelievably cool. You know, like I literally wanted to be them. And here I was. 
and when the head coach finally released the tryout schedules, I about had a heart attack. Varsity? I was going to be trying out for varsity? Me? Little freshman me. I couldn't believe it, but I was ecstatic. It felt like all my hopes and my dreams were finally coming true. You know, except for the fact that I still had to actually try out, so that excitement came and went, and soon it was all business. And I remember that first day of tryouts was absolutely brutal. You know, imagine showing up to a tryout, looking around, and realizing you're literally the only freshman there. Looking back, you know, it was kind of badass, but at that moment, I was so terrified. I began to question myself, and I debated if I was completely in over my head, but I tried not to let my doubts get in the way of such a great opportunity. I was so sick and tired of thinking that I wasn't good enough when it was clear as day that I was. So I tried out. I ran, I threw, I hit, I bunted, I ran some more, I fielded, I threw some more, and I don't think I'd ever worked so hard for anything in my entire life. And so I waited for days and days for the final team roster to be posted. I literally remember checking my school email like 10 times a day just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And then I got the message I'd been waiting so desperately for. Varsity. Rachel Trubb's other freshman. I had done it. I had done the damn thing. And I think at that moment, I had never been more proud of myself. You know, I've had a lot of great moments, but that day when I found out I made the varsity softball team as a freshman, it was a great day. And for me, it went so far beyond just like the bragging rights and to be able to tell people I'm on the varsity as a freshman. You know, it was like all the work I put in since I was a little girl was finally paying off. I was always someone who was so unsure of myself, but that moment made such a difference for me. I felt like I'd finally found my place, like I'd finally found my people. And I was so unbelievably happy. I stopped playing softball after high school. You know, sometimes I still like to look back at old videos and pictures of me playing and it just makes me want to be back there, you know? I think we all have those moments we wish we could just go back and live in just for like another second to feel like our old selves again. And that was definitely one of those moments for me. The past is the past, but it shapes who we are and who we're going to become. And making the varsity team, it may seem so insignificant to other people, but to me, it was everything. I grew up that day, and because of my experience as a softball player, I grew even more as a person. I arrived at the Lincoln Park Greystone that matched the address from Care.com. I was greeted at the door by Levi, four years old, and his mother. We're going to call her Agnes because I can't remember her name and she acted like a total Agnes. There was stuff everywhere in the house. I mean, there was literally a training potty full of pee in the middle of their living room. Now, I don't have kids, but from experience, I do know that potties, especially training, belong in the bathroom. Agnes said she was going to be working on packing and was going to stay home while I babysat Levi, which I guess made sense. She needed a new babysitter trial run. But what made this impossible was that every 10 minutes she'd come back into the room to suggest a new activity for me and Levi. If you know anything about four-year-olds, you know that if their mother is in the room next to you, they're not going to feel comfortable playing with you. First, we played with magnets, then with Play-Doh, and it was then when Agnes returned on schedule and suggested that we would paint. 
Finally, something I could at least contain to a canvas, right? Well, wrong. Wrong. So, so wrong. They led me over to their staircase where the entire wall was covered in finger paintings and stickers. The entire wall. I couldn't figure out what was going on, but I gave up the idea of a normal babysitting experience and I joined Levi by smearing paints along their white wallpaper. It was at this point I texted my friends because I literally could not believe what was going on. Soon, Levi's dad got home. We'll call him Scary Man because, well, you get it. So I assumed now that Agnes and Scary Man were both home that they didn't need me anymore, but no. They sat together in the kitchen and listened to me make small talk with Levi. On our next check-in, Agnes brought out the fire truck. The freaking fire truck. It was a water toy that had a functional fire hose. And after filling the truck in the sink, she told me Levi could play with it in his room and spray it anywhere. I even clarified. Anywhere? But she assured me. And after a while of letting this kid drench himself, his bed, his walls, and his ceiling, I had to put my foot down. I suggested that we played with the toy in his bathroom instead of the carpeted bedroom. Well, it was minutes later that Agnes storms in the room fuming. She asked me why we were in the bathroom and why her son was all wet. Um, girl, maybe it's because you gave your kid a fucking fire hose. But I kept my thoughts to myself, and I tried to explain as she interrupted and told me that they don't play in the bathroom at their house. Pissing in the living room is fair game, but when it comes to water in the bathroom, that is where we draw the line. We returned to Levi's room, and I texted my friends in SOS, asking them if I should just leave. It was then when Scary Man appeared in the doorway. I sat on the floor as he approached and stood above me. He asked if I knew that he owned a company. I didn't. He went on to explain that if any of his employees were using their cell phone while with a client, oh, he would fire them on the spot. He then reiterated that I was his employee that night and Levi was my client. He told me to put my phone away. How did he know I was using my phone? Oh, great question, you sweet listener. Nanny cam. Why do they need a nanny cam if they're both home? Why do they need a nanny if they're both home? I called the lift and told Levi it was time to go back downstairs. As soon as I got down there, Agnes asked me when my Uber was arriving. I just about ran to the door. I'm surprised they paid me at all, but they handed Levi some cash to hand to me and I got out of there. You know, I had always wondered how there are adults operating in the world with no consideration for the rules of how life works. And I never understood where they came from. But it was that night that I learned. I recounted the story to my Uber driver, and while I was trying to grasp what had just happened, we both agreed that our moms were right. Never meet up with a stranger from the internet. But I guess if you do, you might have a good story to tell. Thank you for listening to Radio Stories from the Radio Storytelling class and the radio program in the Communication Department in the School of Media Arts at Columbia College, Chicago. I'm Associate Professor Dave Berner. Thanks for listening today. Bye-bye. This podcast has been created in partnership with WCRX 88.1 FM, Chicago, Illinois. If you enjoyed that content, be sure to search WCRX wherever you get your podcasts for more access to our entire network. 